Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is your typical radio ad while eating a crunch bar. This is Automatic of Auto's Used Cars. This weekend only, we're having a whale. Bring the kids. See for yourself. It is huge. Gonna make a big splash. No other dealer can say they have a whale like this. When things sound dull, turn up the fun with Crunch. Hi everyone, welcome to the penultimate week of season two of Soap from the Box. We're on week 13, I can't quite believe it. There are still four episodes to go though, so lots more to look forward to and we'll of course be back with season three very soon. Remember there are two episodes every single Sunday, so there's still another one to listen to after this. I'm going to shut up and let you enjoy it. Okay, so my guest today started life as Thomas Brown. And is famous to Soap fans for playing Carl King from 2004 to 2012 in the Dallas with Dung that is, of course, Emmerdale. Since then, he's taken the West End by storm, playing Julia Marsh in 42nd Street. Welcome, Tom Lister. Hello, mate. Hello. It's lovely to be back. It's I know, because obviously you were on our little Christmas special we did with Nicola and Nick Miles, who was horrendous at the quiz. No one will ever forget. <laughs> well, uh, I obviously did something right because you've invited me back very quickly. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very quickly, actually. I thought you were very funny. So I wish we knew anyway. But uh, Thomas Brown then. So Thomas Listers, like many actors, as we know their name, it's not their real name. No, no. I uh, Yeah, my name is Tom Brown, uh, as is my dad's name. Um, and uh, as is my, like, great-grandfather's name as well. Which oh, wow. Is isn't it? Yeah, it's like this weird thing that's been passed down the generations um you know if, if we're in america i'd be like tom brown jr the third or something like that <laughs> yeah 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 and so was it a normal spotlight thing which if pe- not spot yeah. was it spotlight yeah where yeah. uh younger viewers probably or listeners wouldn't know about this but if you had the same name as another actor you had to change your name yeah that's right yeah and uh there was there didn't seem to be any actor that i was aware of that had my name so maybe it was a stunt performer or somebody like that, and uh, I could probably change it back if I wanted to now. But obviously, it became quite nice because you end up end up having like a bit of a, a hat for work and a hat for home, and um, you know you you make friends, and then people don't know what to call you from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. At least it's not your first name. But anyway, so I usually start the podcast with a memorable moment, and we talked roughly, we talked uh, really quickly about it on the Christmas podcast. But obviously, we did the big roof episode, and I've only this morning researching. You realised, and this is really bad as a director, but I didn't go too much into Carl King's past. They actually had an underlying fear of heights. Yes, yes, yeah, <laughs> which made for uh, all kinds of uh, storylines over the years. So. One of the most uh, ridiculous of which was me uh, doing a wing walk on a plane in order <laughs> to prove how much I loved Chaz. 
<laughs> and are you fine with heights in real life? Yeah, I mean, it was absolutely amazing being on top of this um, this this plane, just stood on top of the wings, harnessed in, and then the thing just sets off and you stood literally on top of a plane flying around in the sky. It was absolutely bonkers. But, oh, uh, I would love to do that. Yeah, but, uh, you know, it, it didn't make for um, the best uh, facial expressions on television because you can imagine the G-force of the wind was flying around in the sky and then there's all these cameras just picking up your face, li- literally looking like it's melting. <laughs> I've actually got a video of me skydiving out of a plane and I actually look like I die as I leave it because your face just gets like sucked back. <laughs> so I said yeah. it to my mum, I think she think, thought that was the end of my life. But um, So when we did the rooftop, Lexi had obviously taken Nicola's baby up to the top of the roof and we yeah. did a kind of, well, it was a stunt that she kind of basically was, you were holding her off the edge of the building, which is actually the hotel opposite where we filmed Emmerdale. Um, yeah. But we had wires. But that, I mean, that must have still been pretty scary, actually, even though the wires were there kind of hanging off the roof. Yeah, I absolutely love those types of storylines. And that was a great one, really. Um, pretty much Sally's exit, wasn't it? Yeah, that was, yeah. And um, so I got I was so fortunate to be involved in so many of those big stunt-driven episodes. And one of the first things that kind of caused a lot of the vertigo was the fact that he, he, he hated heights and then he ended up pushing the postman off the, the scaffolding and he, he died. And that, that was like six months into the show. Um <laughs> But, uh, oh, yeah, it was great fun. I'm, I'm not particularly frightened of heights, and uh, I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie, so I just loved filming those types of things. And it's great because because it's so safety in place, it's almost like, I mean, you wouldn't ever, I mean, loads of people could go wing walking. You probably wouldn't ever try just for fun to hold someone off the edge of a building. So it kind <laughs> of, it does kind of give allow you to do these crazy things that you would never get to do in real life, doesn't it? So, right, we're going to start with a bit of a quiz. You've kind of given away the first one, actually, and we talked about this at Christmas, but... Uh, just to get us through the storylines. So whose dead body did Carl and his brothers move to the back garden of a house? Oh, that was Paul Marston, the postman. <laughs> and tell us, for anyone who hasn't listened to that Christmas episode yet, you actually auditioned for that part a year before you got Carl King. I did. I did. It got down to myself and uh, and the chap who ended up getting it. And um, and he got it, and I was absolutely devastated. And at the same time, I was auditioning for... Um, the policeman on heartbeat, and I got neither job. Um, so that was quite a bleak Christmas. Um, and then the following September, I started auditioning again for Emmerdale and also for Heartbeat, and got right down to the final two on them both again. And then obviously got the part of Carl King. And then six months in, killed the postman off. So I, mean, that, I know his name was Matthew. I mean, poor, poor guy, isn't it? so that must be i mean and just you saying that i mean obviously people think it's so glamorous the life of acting but actually a lot of it is rejection and not getting stuff as well isn't it i mean it must be because obviously if you got down to the final two for for the postman it means you went to a lot of auditions it must be absolutely mortifying when you don't get a part yeah i mean a good friend of mine andy nyman um he wrote a, a a small little booklet called the golden rules of acting which is um, which is absolutely brilliant there's lo- loads of nuggets in there about um you know just about the industry and, and and all the idiosyncrasies that we all have to cope with on a day-to-day basis but basically getting a job is is the thing that is not common do you know what i mean so yeah. so Loads of processes of, of rejection and and um, elimination or not making it through to the next round or what the worst thing, going for an audition and never hearing anything back. So you kind of, 
there's, there's this really strange do you leave it a week and then just draw a line under it and move on or maybe it's taken them a little bit of time to decide so maybe it's two to three weeks and it, it's horrible because until unless they come back to you and say actually it, we really liked you but it's we're not going to go it's not going to go your way you just don't know so um uh, my agent uh, who i first had when um i was with emmerdale used to say just assume you haven't got it as soon as you walk out because everything else then is a bonus I thought that's really negative. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, actually, it's not a bad thing because sometimes you go in and you want it so badly that it just really cuts deep when it doesn't when you don't get it. Well, I always say when I do acting work classes, I always say, you know, it's not like you're you're up against people who are rubbish. Often it's like six people who are just as good as each other, and it's uh, and everyone wants it that badly. And it's just somebody might have a. I said sometimes on Emmerdale, it used to get down to oh, we've got too many blondes on the show already because all these guys are as good. Let's go for like the dark-haired one. And sometimes it'd be that ridiculous. But um, at least I would always try to let everyone know because I think it's terrible when you don't. Because you might just think you were awful as well because obviously there are a couple of humdingers in there who are terrible, um, which actually then it's really awful to phone them and go, oh, you know, I'd, I'd probably give up. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but so eventually, obviously, you got Carl. And what I love about Carl, so he was... Um, in 2004, it was announced that uh, in The Sun that they're bringing in four new single hunks who were brothers and would improve the sex appeal of Emmerdale. And then obviously, <laughs> then obviously you four got cast. <laughs> but no, so you went in obviously with those three guys as well. I mean, you went in a bit of a different time, but it must have been amazing to join such a big show, not just on your own. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I I joined first in um in February of two thousand and four. I think it was the first episode when it went live, and uh, the the storyline uh, I think was that I I joined Scott, uh, and worked for him in his haulage firm. But it was all a big ruse for us to come in and basically take over because we had our own haulage firm and and uh, bin wagons and all kinds of like working class men made goods. Yes, yeah. <laughs> We all wanted to come in and and take over, and then uh, when Ken Farrington, who played our dad, joined, eventually he was one of the last to come. You know, he, he eyed home farm and thought, "I want to live there," and so uh, that's what we ended up doing. And um, yeah, we we were really fortunate to come in. There was a great camaraderie, pretty much straight out of the gate with the three brothers, and um, you know, we all ended up having our own little storylines in and around the village, but. And when we came together, there was all kinds of fighting and infighting and, um, yeah. It's almost better when they did it with the Slaters in EastEnders. It's a good way to introduce a family because you're all starting on an even kill. Do you know what I mean? Otherwise, it's kind of, it's quite hard to come into the Slaters or whatever now and be as good as any of the others because you're kind of judged so quickly. And there is, um, obviously, there's a trial and error element to it when you're bringing in a new family and uh, they just seem to have found something that worked and that the audience really took to when we came in. So in, in, in some ways, we were really fortunate um, because there was just a little bit of a sprinkling of, of gold dust over the family as it came in, and, and it seemed to fill a gap that was missing in um, Emmerdale at the time. He was described by The Guardian as well, I read this, as a fool whose underpants are easily parted. <laughs> by the guardian it's like amazing oh, i can't put that on my gravestone <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's brilliant um but yeah you so you were because you weren't quite a bad you weren't as bad as you ended up were you when you joined i mean you kind of got badder and badder carl in it 
Well, I always like to think that he was misunderstood, you know, and uh, and that just just people accidentally kept dying around him, and <laughs> he never meant to do it. Apart from when he uh, smashed his dad over the head with a statue and threw him through the window at home farm. Um, apart yeah, from- but he had had a drink, so you know. Yeah, you know, <laughs> we all get angry when we've had a few. <laughs> yeah. So next question to move us on, right? Who did Matthew move in with um, to start a rival company with to the rest of you? Ooh, wow. Wow, there you go. Was that... Uh... It was a woman. Yeah, was that was that Emma? No, it was, it was Sadie King. Originally, I was going to say Patsy Kenzie's character. When Patsy's came in i mean lots of people say this the vibe kind of changed not because of Patsy, because she almost brought attention to emmerdale because emmerdale was always the underdog really and then suddenly patsy seemed to bring the, the paps to it and it became it kind of went to another level didn't it you really did and it was absolutely incredible having um, patsy kenzie on the set you know i mean uh, i remember watching her back in lethal weapon 2 you know um so uh it was it was great and um you know, she she brought um, energy to the set uh, on a regular basis, and we had a lot of fun with her. Um, and it caused, I mean, she came, didn't she come in on a helicopter? Yeah, she arrived at a helicopter. Yeah, I mean, she did make yeah. an entrance. Yeah, so that was uh, quite uh, quite exciting. They always, I remember, they always used to try to find ways of bringing people in excitingly. I remember the biggest mess up they did was Amanda Donahoe, and they had this huge sequence arranged of her like galloping across fields on a horse. And when she arrived, they asked her if she rode, and she was scared stiff of riding. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember? It was like the biggest. It was like, oh god. <laughs> Is there um? What was the kind of? I mean, you obviously were involved in the Who Killed um Tom King storyline, uh, yeah. which must be really exciting. We brought we mentioned this at Christmas, but you didn't know, did you? For ages, just like I mean, EastEnders, it was even bigger, I suppose, because they didn't know until the on the night of the live in the middle of the show they got told. But what um what what did you think when you got told? Well, I, I was I was like, oh well, it, surely it's got to be me because it makes most sense. I mean, some of the other, the reasons behind it were the most ridiculous reasons I've ever heard of in my life. But uh, you know how Bob <laughs> Bob might have done it and all this. I know Glynis. I mean, Glynis's character actually thought it was Bob for ages, <laughs> the worst detective in the world. Oh, it was so funny because we were just get to the end of an episode and, and obviously you had to remain as one of the suspects so you almost had to do an arched eyebrow to the camera at the end of yeah. the, to trick the audience is it me i don't know you don't know who knows we'll find out soon or will we <laughs> um so uh but one of the uh most vivid memories i have of that is that amazing usual suspects poster that we had mocked up Oh, yeah. And um, what do you actually, this is another thing Charlie Harwick said in her podcast. So she said, and I'd never thought of this before, that she didn't read scripts in advance because she was worried that she would start playing it, which I hadn't really thought of. Because it's like a stunt, isn't it? If you know, or you know, you're, if you know you're going to get ha- have a pint thrown in your face, it's quite hard not to react before you react. <laughs> Are you a fan? Were you a fan in of knowing what was coming up? Or did you prefer to keep it kind of, you know, not to know later on? Um, well, uh, it, it potentially could be through uh, lack of organisation more than anything else. But, um, yeah, I used to scan through certain things and, and just to see where what the gist of it was. Um, I mean, we all used to just scan quickly through it, the episodes to see if we were going to be busy or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to see how much money it was coming in that month. 
yeah. But in terms of um, going through and, and prepping, I mean, uh, some I, I remember Art Charnock, he loves to kind of be completely off book, absolutely solid on his lines when he walks onto set, which is completely admirable. But I um, quite like to have a loose understanding and then come on set and just go with the vibe of um, what everybody else brings. So uh, so um, I always used to, and I pick up lines quite quickly. I was, I've always been quite fortunate with that. So I used to, um, I used to, you know, I'd go through the stuff the night before, but then come on and um, and then just learn it as we rehearse the scene. And you just develop a, a pattern of working, don't you? Because we're so used to working quickly at Emmerdale that, um, you know, you have a quick line run, you'll do a bit of a block, you do a couple more line runs uh, um, with the cast whilst you're plotting cameras and sound and stuff like that. And then by then I was pretty much off scene, off script and ready to go. Yeah, no, I think that is, because um, I think you always want to have that room to change stuff on set, don't you, as well? Because as we know, you know, the script writers are amazing, but sometimes, um, you know, it's often when you go on set that things come to life and some things don't work and stuff, don't they? Yeah. So, um, right, next question. Who was, we kind of talked about her actually, but who was hit by a lorry escorting Carl to the police station for killing his dad? Um, was that, who was killed by, was they killed by a lorry? Yeah, you must lorry. remember. It was Glynis. Yeah. Glynis. Yeah. It was done ever. Don't you remember? I remember watching it until she got hit at full speed by a massive lorry and she had one trickle of blood coming out of her head. I know, I know. You would think it would be absolute, you know, road. She would be scattered across the whole of the road. <laughs> but I'm going to play you a clip from Glynis's episode. And this is when we talked, and I don't know whether I've ever told you this, of um, what happened when she knew she had scenes for you. And I, I kind of told a lie but forgot to tell her the truth. So here is her. I was at the time that Tom... Only to because the trick of television is when you do kissing scenes, you obviously just peck on the lips. You don't use any tongue. And I told Glynis that Tom Lister was adamant that he had to use tongue and forgot to tell Glynis that this was actually made up. And so Glynis, when you did a scene with him, actually said to him, Tom, I just have to say, I don't use tongue. And he, he was like, He looked what? horrified. And the other thing about that affair was, is I was a lot older than Tom Lister. I mean, I think he was literally He's in really his twenties. He looks much. Oh, anyway, we'll go on. You can listen to Glynis's podcast, but yeah, I forgot. Do you remember that? I mean, how embarrassing that she actually said to you. I <laughs> it was so funny. Well, she never really said anything at, at the first time we had a kissing scene. But um, I went to do this kissing scene, and you know, it was almost it was it was really quite funny. I was thinking this is going to be emotionally charged. It's going to be quite passionate. And and we went to kiss for the first time, and it was like Glynis was like, "There is absolutely no way, you know." Like, <laughs> and you are putting anything inside my mouth, and I was like, "Hey, hey, it's all right, it's all right, don't worry." <laughs> And then I found out what you'd said, and I thought, you little beggar. <laughs> I know. I I felt so bad not telling her. It was only like a joke, and then I didn't tell her. I mean, oh, my God. But, um, I mean, I mean, Glynis, I was in love with when I was young. That must have been quite cool, having Glynis come in to play your love interest as well. Amazing. I used to watch Dempsey and Make Peace and, uh, and thought, oh, my word, Glynis Barber's coming in. I know. You had a few of those moments now. Patsy, Glynis. I know, I know. And Emily Simons. That's yes. She- the first um, lady that uh, Carl fraternised with when he went into the village and obviously grew up watching Home and Away and things like that. So, uh, that's yeah. like rule of three. That's a brilliant thing to have. Glynis Barber, Emily Simons and Patsy Kenzie. Did you get it on with Patsy Kenzie? 
No, I didn't know. Oh, okay. You want to finish that trio off? Linda Lusardi. Oh, yes, of course, Linda Lusardi. Recognised on uh, on set, but apparently Carl lost his virginity to her. (laughs) So Carl basically had a good ride, as well as, uh, so to speak, what he did. And as a little surprise, I'm just going to play you this. Oh, Thomasy, Thomasy, Thomasy. Mr. Blister, my um, long-lost lover. <laughs> How are you, darling? Um, I hope you're well. Um, I was just thinking about the most memorable things that I could think about with uh, about working with you. I mean, the things... You see, I have children. They're in the background talking. And um, it, things that popped into my head were... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the good old favourite time when we worked our butts off to do that scene when we Mommy, were speaking. Mummy, Mummy's talking Mommy. to Timothy Lister. Mummy, um, this yes. is a bit hot. It's a bit hot. I don't know what she's going on about. But uh, the uh, couple of things that spring to mind was uh, when we <laughs> worked our butts off. Doing that scene uh, where Carl and Chaz split up and Henry Foster was the director and uh, we'd worked really hard on the dialogue and we were, you know, going through the middle of it. And he walks on the set and went, and the audience falls asleep. <laughs> I'm like, oh, cheers, Henry. And he was like, oh, no, 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 it's just because it's so long. Um, and then I miss warming my hands up underneath your armpits at the village random <laughs> and how we teased it during the live that you should just open your eyes at the very end of the episode when they panned out just so that you weren't going to die uh the live will always stay in my head as an amazing scary exhilarating bonding um brilliant brilliant i know everybody else was petrified but i think with us having so much to do and as a, as a fitting farewell to our characters being together and a fitting tribute to all those years that you were with us um, for it to... Oh, God, I've got a reversing t- toddler with a toilet roll. Can we do that house? I'm trying to be all sentimental and nice and I've got mental children and a, and a dog here. Um, so I miss you, Mr. Blister. I'm just so proud. Shush. So proud that you went on. No, 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 no. <laughs> so proud that you went on to do such amazing things. Um, even though it was our loss losing you, it was their gain, gaining such a talented man to do all those amazing performances that you've done since. Uh, I miss you, Mr. Blister. And I wish you were back. Maybe Carl's twin sister can. Twin sister? <laughs> twin brother can come back. Um, I love you, darling. And I hope you are well and the kids and uh, sending you loads and loads of love. There Bye-bye. we go. Lucy Parker, obviously, who plays Chaz. Uh, but, yeah, you had a brilliant relationship, didn't you, you guys? We really did. And um, I... Yeah, I mean... It... I miss her so much because we just we had so much uh, time together on the show, and and really we got together pretty much straight out of the gate, and then um, obviously I ended up uh, fraternising with pretty much most of the women in the village, but always <laughs> she was the true north. I just kept going back to her, and um, there was 
such a great chemistry between the two of us that it was it was sad in a way that it had to end in the way that it did. But um, I was also so fortunate to have that brilliant storyline um, with her and Don Power and everybody else, and and so that I, I'll never forget that live episode. I mean, so often when people leave the show, I can't remember if I said this at Christmas or not, but so often when pe- people leave the show, there'll be a there'll be a scene on set which is your final scene. And uh, it's whoever's there on the day. It might be at 11 o'clock on a Monday morning. And there's only like the crew there and two other actors. And everybody says a fond farewell. And uh, and then you kind of pack up your dressing room and on, off you go. But because it was a live episode, everyone was there. And there was like three or four crews, the whole cast. And so when I finished, um, you know, I just got jumped on by the entire company and uh, <laughs> i felt so fortunate for that and you know i just kept bursting into tears no oh, that's you're right that's an amazing way to end actually i mean i've been on set when um you know like an actor i remember barbara windsor actually we'd filmed all of the huge emotional stuff and then did a really basic scene to end on and they're yeah. all trying not to cry in it and they all we're talking about is something like cake or something do you know what i mean it's like <laughs> <laughs> really hard but yeah your scene was the dying scene and um and, and it is funny isn't it because literally it's probably the only time you could have actually opened your eyes because it was live and that's what would have gone out <laughs> <laughs> i mean obviously you wouldn't have been the flavor of the month but do you i mean is it is it good as an actor to have had that end though do you know what I mean does it make you have to move on because obviously sam giles says on the podcast that it's quite hard not dying in it because you've always got it there at the back of your head yeah, it's funny. Me and me and uh, Nick Miles were having a bit of a, a text conversation back and forth the other night, and uh, and I was saying, "Come on, mate, there must be room in in Emmerdale at the moment for a for a zombie storyline. I could like live in a basement, and you could like just uh, bring me uh, like the brains of some of the uh, the dead villagers uh, out of the cemetery. <laughs> I could just live there like some kind of weird Frankenstein monster, <laughs> and then we can work together again." He was like, absolutely. There's definite room for a zombie storyline. <laughs> Charlie Harbin's done it. She went back as a ghost a couple of times. Oh, I got asked to go back as a ghost. There's no way I could do it. And then, oh, did you? Yeah, and then in the end, they got somebody who looked like me from the back and then just pulled out a couple of lines from old audio. Oh, no. <laughs> what are you doing? They've done uh, that quite a bit, actually, because there was a, quite a lot I saw when I, when I sometimes put it on of Lisa Dingle back from the dead in Belle's head, which was all quite <laughs> odd. Yeah. Uh, uh, In going back to your question, yeah, I do think that the finality of it really helped me to kind of think, right, I can't be constantly looking over my shoulder when, you know, when times are tough or when, uh, like particularly now, when we went through, you know, the last year where soap's almost been one of the only things that's been made. Um, You know, I can't ring up some of my old friends and go like, hey, how do you fancy seeing Carl King back for a bit? Yeah. Uh, you know, I have to move on and I have to forge a new path. And um, and that's meant that uh, I look back on it on nothing but fond memories and all the friendships that I made there. But um, we move on to uh, to new pastures and to hopefully bigger and better things. Totally right. And um, I'll, I'll leave, before we talk about you and other stuff, I'll leave the, Tom K- the Carl King with the Radio Times. They said in a review of the Lider episode, as Carl lay lifeless on the floor, and in those dying seconds, it really did feel like the end of an era. New babies are ten a penny on soap, but decent villains are priceless. It's hard to see who deserves to inherit the mighty Carl King's crown. Great, great um, 
great wow. review. I never saw that. That's really lovely. Oh, did you? Yeah, brilliant. And it is hard. I don't think actually Carl King's boots have been filled because obviously also, you know, they tried to do another baddie. So it's such a long time ago now, but people still, you know, come up and say lovely things about it um, when they see us in the street. So obviously it made an impression. So moving on from Emmerdale and to you, and so, I mean, there was life before Emmerdale, obviously. I mean, did you want to be an actor or did you, you know, was it something that happened later in life? I never really sought it out as a career. I didn't I didn't grow up going to um, stage schools or anything like that. I used to, uh, we used to write, me and my, I've got a twin brother and uh, and a really close network of friends. And we all grew up in this tiny little village in the Yorkshire Dales and we used to write little skits and stupid sketches and we'd film all kinds of stupid things and entertain our families. So we always had that, um, you know, extrovert and, uh, <laughs> and showy-offy nature, I suppose. <laughs> we used to go into the nativities at Sunday school and all that type of stuff together. But then when we went into school life, I never even thought about anything like that until we got to uh, sixth form and they asked the football team to audition for this uh, play that they'd written. It was all around 50 years celebration of uh, Victory in Europe Day, VE Day. So the, the art teacher and English teacher had written this whole story about this football team going out to fight in the, world, in the war. Uh, and so we all got told we had to audition. So we did, and I got the lead, and, uh, and then I just got the bug. And that was it. I was off. I just, I just loved it. And then performed a couple more times in the school shows and then decided to defer university and go and join a theatre company for two years. Oh, wow. And so it was like going around doing performances in schools and, uh, you know, drama, English and uh, RE lessons and things like that, and uh, which was incredible. But then, um, <laughs> then I decided to just have a punt and go for drama college and, and managed to get in and went to Birmingham for three years. Amazing. There must be a thing about trying to get the manly sports teams to do drama at school. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it, I, I think I just, there was a part of me that just never really dared do it because I didn't want to fail. And I think yeah. that that is that I, I constantly fight with a, a little bit inside myself of like having to put yourself into risky situations because um, I do. I think we all have that thing inside us where we where we don't want to mess up or we don't want to be laughed at or we don't want to fail. But then it, equally, if you don't put yourself in those situations, you don't grow and you also don't. You don't know. You don't and also I think, like Sue Johnson says, she never feels good enough because we're in this job that's so good that you can't yeah. believe you're actually, when it's going well and you're getting paid, you can't believe you're actually, like, th that it's happening. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Absolutely. And, um, you know, sometimes you can go into a room and – be utterly intimidated by the amount of people who are there and the caliber of the people that you're surrounded by and then you're like what the hell am i doing here <laughs> but then um once you get a bit past all that and you realize that we all have the same kind of uh feelings and same thoughts and the same uh feelings of inadequacy um you realize well you know we're all just people at the end of the day aren't we we're all just yeah, and we all have our own little things that we have to kind of get over. So you soon ended up in telly, 
And I'm going to see if you can remember the names of the people you played in these shows. In you were in Heartbeat. Do you remember who you were in Heartbeat? Harry Wainwright. Yes. God. Wow. <laughs> so, and you'd gone to you'd gone to Heartbeat as the main detective, had you as well before that, or no, after that? I went into Heartbeat as a uh, as a farm. That was my first ever job, uh, and straight out of drama college. Wow. Um, brilliant. Uh, I was like the eldest son of this farming family, and we were feuding with this other farming family and it all ended up on this uh, guns drawn on the moor at dawn or something like that, you know, wow. <laughs> a massive brawl in the Aidens field arms. So it was all just uh, warming up for Carl King really. Yeah. So then you're in doctors, you've been in doctors three times. Yes. Yeah. Can you remember, uh, can you remember who you played? You were in 2002. Do you remember the first time? Um, that was the domestic violence storyline and, uh, and Christopher Timothy directed it. Oh, and wow. I, I had this tiny little girl who, um, who you know, obviously drank and and got violent, and and I was, and she cut me across the face with a broken bottle, or something like that. So yeah, it was uh, it was a pretty violent storyline, um, but uh, yeah, I don't go don't go looking for that because it was pretty awful. Right. Okay. <laughs> and well, so then you're in 2016. So that that you played Andy Mills in that first one, a uh, good old Andy. Uh, Martin Lord, you played in 2016, and then you've recently done it last year. And yeah. do you remember the name of him then? You must do that. Simon, Simon, yeah, yeah, Simon, yes, there you go. And I, I suppose what I wanted to ask you because uh, going back over what 10 years, uh, nearly 20 years of being that, did you see a difference in how kind of the stuff had changed production wise? Like, is it had it got faster and faster and faster? Well, actually, the, the most recent was probably the um. I noticed things differently because obviously we're filming under COVID guidelines. So it's all with getting, whipping out the two meter stick. Right. Yeah. Staying well apart from one another and everything shot single camera. Whereas when we were on Emmerdale, we were shooting multi cameras and we were moving through like really complicated four page, five page scenes in an hour. Whereas that would probably take ages with like single camera work and doing all the different types of things that are having to do at the moment um, on doctors. But uh it, it felt similar, you know, in, in, in truth. I, I suppose Heartbeat was one of my first jobs, and that was probably something that they took a bit more time with um, because it was just one episode a week. But uh, I think the quality of the picture and the lighting and things like that have changed. I think Emmerdale, now you look at it now, it looks amazing. Yeah, it does, yeah. And some of the episodes I was in, and you're like, oh, my days. <laughs> I know. And also, but also, because I always think, I mean, I've done single camera and multi camera. I mean, what did you prefer? In a way, I prefer multi camera because what I do miss about multi camera is that if you had a big emotional scene, you could you could get it in one. And I thought it'd be a, it was electric, which oh. I'm not sure you ever recreate in single camera. No, no, it, it puts you under a lot more pressure. Like um, I had uh, quite a few scenes in that Doctor's one where I was just, uh, I was. Uh, it was a, again, it was another domestic violence storyline, and uh, my daughter had killed my wife because she gone bonkers. But I'd taken the rap for it, so I was in jail basically trying to protect my kids. So I had this real emotional day where where it all came out. Seven or eight scenes inside the um, prison doctor's office where I'm I'm realizing that I've been uh, rumbled and bawling ball, my eyes out, panicking about my kids. And because it's single camera, you've just got like seven, eight, nine takes. Oh, there was a booming on that. 
and you're having to go again and you're like, oh my word, I don't think I've got another one in me. <laughs> yeah, that is tough. Especially cry, yeah, cry. I mean, God. Yeah, and you just have to trust the director at the end of the day. They know as to whether they can, what the scene is truthful. Uh, but I don't tend to watch things back now. I used to watch them in the early days of Emmerdale. And you just end up criticising yourself so much and thinking, why did I do that? That I've just decided it's better if I just don't watch it. Yeah. I, I, I mean, yeah, I don't know any actor that's happy, really. I've never watched anything with an actor who's gone, oh, yeah, no, that was great. I was great in that. <laughs> yeah. You've obviously been amazing in the theatre, done some amazing things. I'm going to start with another little surprise message from someone. Right. Oh, howdy, Tom Lister. <laughs> As I used to say, gosh, shamity. <laughs> Have a great show today from your old Calamity Jane. Yeah. So that is obviously Jodie Prenger, who I didn't, I didn't, I never saw Calamity Jane, so I never knew you worked with her because I've obviously been working with her loads recently. And I mean, she's amazing, isn't she? We had um, an absolute ball. We had about 18 months on the road together. Uh, and we we started it out in uh, a tiny little watermill theatre, which is just down in Newbury near Oxford, and um, it's a gorgeous place. But well, uh, um, you only seat about um, 150 200 people, but it's this wooden box watermill, so it looked like a saloon, and um, and we were all in these proper old woolen clothes. I was like this cowboy, Wild Bill Hickok. And uh, we were all playing our own instruments to kind of be the the band as well as the the singers. Uh, And so it was terrifying because I had to sing a solo just playing the guitar on my own at the beginning of Act Two every night, like my my main song. It was me basically with a guitar on my own. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. But you you blew everyone away. I mean, I read all the reviews, and they're incredible. They say, understated, you walked away with the show, and especially doing that second song. So from someone who's not gone to stage, I mean, you did end up going to stage school and stuff. Did you know, like, did you did you, you thought musical theatre was in you? Do you know what I mean? Is it something you'd always wanted to do? I'd always wanted to do it, yeah. When I was actually doing, um, uh, when I was actually training down in Birmingham, I used to, uh, we had to train like eight till six every day. And then um, obviously, like you do when you're at university, you have to go and get a job to kind of afford to live. So yeah. I had to go and work down in the theatre. So I used to sit in the theatre and, and work front of house or bar. And um, it was back in the days when uh, shows like Les Mis would go and have a residency in Birmingham for like six to nine months. So I'd sit there and watch Les Mis every night. And, uh, and I'd just think, I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to be on that on that stage singing and being in these incredible shows. Um, but when we were there uh, doing our acting degree, there, there became an opportunity to do a musical theatre pathway. Uh, and it was a brand new thing that they were starting out and they asked us, loads of us to do it in year two. And I said no, <laughs> partly because I thought they're only just starting it. And I figured if I can sort out my acting and I can get that part of it right, I know I can sing. And I can also just improve my singing as I go. And sure enough, that was a great decision. I was very lucky that I made that decision because it was proper awful with some of that musical theatre stuff. At the time. <laughs> and um, and I figured that I went straight into telly, which I was really fortunate with, because then it gave me a level of profile, which meant that um, I could go into some of those musicals at a bit of a, you know, getting the opportunity to get some great parts. Yeah, because obviously there's a big, I mean, that's part of the debate, isn't it? Chelsea Healthy said the same. There's that debate between, obviously they get, nowadays there's 
they of course put TV stars, and it's not that TV stars can't do it, but to get bums on seats, that that would cause a bit of a thing in the theatre industry with these people. But so how? I mean, obviously, the thing is, you can, we all know you can act and sing these people doing it anyway. But did you find that resistance at all, joining theatre? I think you have a little bit of that when you walk in, especially if people don't know you. And then hopefully, as, as time goes on and they realise the type of person that you are, then all those initial preconceived ideas that we have of one another just melt away. And, uh, you know, there's one thing I can't do. I can't dance. So, um, you know, I, I certainly i uh, am not... Uh, I'm not one of those four trick ponies. But, uh, <laughs> no. I mean, working with someone like Jodie, who obviously, I mean, blows me away, actually, how incredible she is. Must be amazing to go on tour with someone who's such a musical theatre, you know, goddess as well. You must learn so much from each other. We did. And um, uh, she's just a, a force to be reckoned with, you know, in terms of her energy. We would um, we'd work hard. We'd play hard. We had a lot of fun. You know, we did some shows together after we'd had some pretty heavy nights out. And uh, <laughs> she was always incredible. And that, that meant that you had to kind of match that because otherwise, um, you know, it wasn't fair one on the audience, but also because everybody's there and you, you just want, you've got to do it, haven't you? Um, but my word, we had some fun on that on that tour. Cracky, there's some stories that came away from that. I bet. I mean, that is definitely where the same goes on tour, stays on tour. Uh, <laughs> Isn't it? But theatre tours, and again, though, I mean, although it's fun, people out there listening will probably think they're the most glamorous things in the world. But again, theatre tours, you have to find your own digs and everything, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they've got to some parts where, you, where you're travelling the UK and you can go to some incredible places and stay in gorgeous digs. I remember when we were staying up in Aberdeen, we, we found this place on the seas from, oh. you know, and we were staying in this incredible house. We've got an Airbnb and a couple of the lads. And uh, one of those Airbnbs where, where the coach just pulls out all the stops. And we were literally a uh, 10-second walk from just sitting on the beach. Wow, amazing. And then we went to Dartford, three of us sharing a, a travel lodge room. Oh, <laughs> my God. <laughs> Saved some money. I think it was something like £33 each for the week. We were eating, like, porridge out of, um, you know, those just had hot water. <laughs> yeah, that they leave hanging on the door. Yeah. <laughs> It's, when, I, when I did EastEnders, I paid more for my two weeks in the Ibis in Borewood than I did to go on holiday to Mauritius. Oh, my word. That was depressing. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I mean. People would be like, oh, my God, you're directing EastEnders. They put you up in like somewhere amazing. I'm like, no, no, I put myself up in the Ibis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just that. I, I, what I love about theatre, I think, um, and I directed my first play, obviously, at the end of last year. Um, a, for the actors, I think, because you get that – you. From the very beginning, you get a sense of what's working from the audience and you can adapt it. Whereas on TV, you just don't know, obviously, until it goes out. No, no. And I think that was part of the reason why I just stopped watching and stopped, you know, because if you watch or if you, you know, with social media and stuff like that, you can just have people just being ripped apart. Yeah, yeah. So it's just best to kind of completely stay away from it. Um, and, uh, And I guess... We there was the only thing that you know as to whether it's working or not is if the writers keep writing for you, and uh, and the producers keep renewing your contract. So yeah. Whereas on on theatre, did you find as well? I mean, people always say you know like wherever they are and you go to see a concert, they're like, oh my god, you're the best audience ever, which you know they've said every night. But did you see a kind of 
divide in audiences as you went around the country as to the levels of kind of like what they were like. With Calamity Jane, we just didn't know that people were going to take to it like they did. And I think lots of people came to see it, friends of ours, who thought, well, I don't really know the film. I suppose it's going to be all right. It's just a Wild West musical. But it was funny. It was fast-paced. It was, like, full of energy. And it and Nikolai Foster had directed it. In a oh, he's amazing. So we're in Buxton Opera House, which is a tiny little beautiful theatre in the middle of the, uh, the people. Oh, I like this chick. It's amazing, yeah. Went to Edinburgh and played at, uh, at the Palace with, like, 2,800 people in. Uh, on a Saturday matinee where it was absolutely raucous because, like, most of them were pissed. <laughs> and, uh, you know, at one point, it gets to the point where um, uh, I put, like, this this chair down um, and sit next to Calamity, you know, um, in the in the saloon right towards the end, and it's the moment where it comes up to the big kiss. And uh, and so there was one night there where, um, where I went to do that and... Um, put the chair down and it fell apart into it completely <laughs> pieces because it had taken some hammer on the road and it just completely crumbled and that was it we were all absolutely like laughing to the point of tears <laughs> on the final saturday matinee we went to, i went to sit next to her and uh, and it was just the most electric audience and just as i went to kiss her <laughs> this guy just shouted from like the gods go on carl grab a debts <laughs> 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 oh, Jordy was just like the shoulders were going. We were trying <laughs> to kiss, and we were both like, "Just, just, just, just hold this moment until we stop laughing, and then we'll carry on with the scene." That's amazing. And I think like theatre is just that—it's that camaraderie of the company, isn't it? And I, I, when I used to do theatre years ago, you get so depressed when a show finishes because you become such a—I mean, I know you do on telly, but you all go back to your home lives. Whereas on a tour, obviously, you're all together. So it's like yeah. you become such a family, it's hard to lose that, isn't it, as well? Uh, most people, when you're down in London, they live down there, so they go to the theatre at night and perform, and then they go back to their lives, whereas I obviously live up north. So um, I, I missed that touring family vibe where everybody's kind of going to these new new towns together and you go and explore together. And So it was quite difficult at times because I spent two years down in London. And, and that uh, was obviously doing 42nd Street, which... Obviously, you know, just blew everything out of the water. It was amazing. You on opening night, I know you have Morgan Freeman in the audience. Obviously, the Duchess of Cambridge in the Royal Box. Yeah. You were opposite Sheena Easton, who's obviously a legend. I mean, it must have been incredible that opening night at Forty Second Street. Well, um, I before I'd even got the part, I went down. I didn't really know it. I went down to audition for it. My agent said, "You've got to go and do this seriously." Everybody's talking about it. It's going to be massive. Go and audition and just see where you get on. And then I got offered the part in the rehearsal room. I read that, which is incredible. That never happens. And honestly, um, the guy just said to me, Tom, just sit down. He said, I really want you to play this part. And this was the guy who co-wrote the script. So he's an American guy as well, isn't it? So he had no idea who you were. It wasn't like... Yeah, Mark Bramble, his name was. And um, he'd been there since 42nd Street first played... In um, in Broadway in like nineteen, wow. and um, and he just said, "I want you to be Julian Marsh. How do you feel about that?" And I was like, "Ah, oh, what? God, a bleh. <laughs> you know, I had literally no words. And uh, and then, that, I mean, and that is amazing. Did you walk out? Was there a line of people afterwards? You just walked out, going, uh... <laughs> oh, <you> "Suckers." <laughs> 
but that's incredible. Well, I, I, I just felt so, so lucky, really. And um, uh, the, the two lasting memories of that show are, like you say, the opening night, where we played in front of a few audiences, but then that was the one where you wanted to blow it out of the park because that's when all the, all the uh, papers were in and it was all going to be this, this big showy moment. And there was incredible people in the audience. And, uh, and I'm pretty much throughout the entire show, hardly off stage. I have most of the lines because all I'm doing is running around and organising everybody and busting balls. It's for anyone that's not seen it, we play a washed-up uh, musical director. So it's a musical within a musical. Yeah, so I, it's, um, it's post-Depression uh, America. Everybody's um, literally on their backsides. They've got no money. They're, they're, they haven't been able to put shows on for ages. And suddenly this uh, Texan... Uh, millionaires decided to put some money in to uh, put on a musical, and uh, but his his sweetheart, who's played by Sheena Easton, he's going to be the star in it. So we start putting the show on, and then she gets knocked over by a young girl in the chorus line, and uh, breaks her ankle, and so and that's just as we're about when we're rehearsing in Philadelphia and about to take it back to Broadway. So then it's all over, but then the young girl who knocks her over in the chorus line ends up stepping in and becoming the star. So. Um, the final moment, I've, I'm on stage singing 42nd Street, the reprise, on my own, just under this big, massive floodlight. Do not screw this up, whatever you do. And I could see the Duchess of Cambridge coming out of the Royal Box because <laughs> she was about to come on stage uh, during the curtain call. And uh, and she's standing in the wings as I'm singing. I'm like, don't forget your lines. Don't miss this massive last <laughs> note. All these things flying through my head. And then managed to do it, and I was so pumped as I walked off stage that I nearly went up to her and threw my arms around her. I'm going to tell you because it's the end of that show. You just want to grab someone and be like, "Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah." I mean, it was incredible. I just went up and had a chat to her, and she was lovely and said some really nice things. And then on the final night, again, you did two years of it, didn't you? Yeah, we well just shy of two years. And uh, on the final night, it was absolutely packed to the rafters, and they just kept doing ridiculous stand innovation throughout throughout the entire performance. So wow. we had a chair dance at the end. Everybody stood up and never shut up for about five or six minutes, just clap, 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 and then um, and cheering. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll never forget that. That's, never. I mean, yeah, that's part of history. I think anyone's dream, even if they can't act, would be into West End, just to see a name up outside a theatre. Jodie told the story when she was in, she was in the Coronation Street musical, which obviously didn't set the world alight. And uh, <laughs> her, her and Paul O'Grady were like moving set on stage because nothing was ready for the first night. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, but amazing, 42nd Street. And then obviously, to end, you've been doing loads of your own stuff as well because you write, you've, you've done Lost in Limbo Land recently at Christmas, which went around schools, which is like a panto. You obviously had your big, the fastest selling Pants show in the history of the Grand Theatre in Blackpool, but then you never got to do it in the theatre, did you? In the end, no. So when we talked at Christmas, we were uh, we were we went into rehearsals, and then obviously theatre had to close. So we we quickly filmed it and they put it out as a screen. So it's been a it's been a tough year, and uh, and so we've just been trying to stay creative and and try to uh, we we've opened up a company that produced our the school's pantomime that went out and sold really well. And uh, we uh, and in the process at the moment of about we're going to put out a live YouTube show on Sunday nights, myself and Steve Royal. Called Lock In. So it's Steve and Tom's Lock In. We're filming it in, in a pub. Uh, so we're inviting everybody to come in and, and, and have a drink in the pub virtually with us, uh, which so they're probably going to be sat at home thinking, you absolute gits. 
how much I want to be in a pub right now. And I know, I know. Well, although it will only be you two now. I was going to say it. If you had selected people in there, it'd be a nightmare. But yeah, God, it will be quite nice for you to be back. It's just that smell of a pub. Yeah, so we're going to film that. We're going to have like just an hour of entertainment and silliness. We're going to have some celebrity guests coming on, maybe um, in person or, or virtually. So it should be good fun. We're going to see how that goes. So that's locking you on YouTube, people can watch. And then so pantomime, but do you think you'll do, because obviously... You know, like we streams a play, but it's not the same as doing a big panto show because you rely on the. I mean, it's just a different vibe, isn't it? Because the audience can get involved. So, will you still put plans in place to put that on? Do you think next year or? Um, well, we 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 wrote it and designed it as a film, so it wasn't um, the last. Ah, one right. Was, okay. Oh, great. Okay. We we made it to to be um and and you know a visual format and um and it worked really well and actually a lot of schools picked it up and said. This is great because we can't literally can't afford to take all of our kids to the to the theatre. Yeah. We'd love to, but we can't. So um, it's possible that we might do something similar. But then it, equally, we're going to put out some more content throughout the year. Then we're also working on some other writing for um, just ourselves, just to keep creative and just try and get some stuff out there and get made on screen. Oh, well, that's brilliant. Like we said before we started, yeah, I'm doing the same. It's just, it's a, at least it's a chance to put, you know, because there's not much work to put. And you never know what's going to come of stuff. It's been amazing, mate. And I'm going to end with, so you went on, I just, I don't know why I'm doing this. I thought it's quite funny. You went on Family Fortunes with the King family. And I tried to find the questions you got, which I couldn't. And then I came across this, which um, on the internet, but so it's three of the funniest answers that have ever been given. I'm just going to play them, but I'm going to ask you first. So, as if the light's going down, name something people take with them to the beach. Towel. Towel. Okay, so this is what the person said on on the thing. Uh, here we go. Name something people take with them to the beach. Turkey. <laughs> Turkey? Turkey? <laughs> what the hell? Then the next one was, name a game you can play in bed. Oof, hello. <laughs> no. Uh, I spy. Oh my god, well. He probably obviously thought the same. And then this is my favourite, one of the favourite things ever. What uh, Name a type of bean. <laughs> Runner. Runner, okay. Here's the, what Brian Dowling said. <laughs> amazing so lesbian bean we will end the podcast mate it's been amazing to talk to you thanks very much tom oh my pleasure mate cheers take care buddy you too man bye-bye thank you so much to tom lister what a man what an actor you must go and see him when he next does a stage show because he's absolutely brilliant. Thanks so much, Tom, for coming on Soap from the Box. Remember, there are two episodes every single Sunday this series. The other one is with Neighbours star Charlotte Chimes, so make sure you listen to that. You can catch me all week on social media at Soap from the Box on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. And remember, I also have a radio show called The A to Z of Soap every Saturday at 3 o'clock on Great British Radio. You can also catch episodes of Soap from the Box. I would like to thank David Stevens and the Bothy, as usual, for their edit and technical wizardry, and Ian McCallum for all of his press help. Have a safe and fun week, and I will see you next week for the last week of Season 2. Soap from the Box.